Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Here is a reading from Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all of the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens... He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the decrees of the Lord are sure making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, in this time of silent reflection, perhaps the most silent reflective we've been all week, because even amid the quarantining and the social distancing and the staying at home, our minds still rush a million miles per hour. We still have thousands of voices coming at us every day, whether it's multi-million dollar marketing campaigns that tell us we need to buy the next product, go on the next vacation, do more, be more, wear more, drive a better car, and on and on it goes. Or that voice that comes from within, that inner critic, that inner heckler that says that our best days are behind us or we've failed and messed things up and we're not going to be able to recover them. What's the point of even going on? Or we just are over-entertained. We have checked out. We've tricked ourselves into thinking, maybe we don't need you after all because we're doing quite well. However we find ourselves in this moment, bored or full of meaning, hopeful or full of fear, connected or lonely, 
believing or unbelieving, somewhere in between. However we find ourselves, help us to see that you actually see us in all our complexity and contradictions, and you know us. And your response to us with all our beauty and all our brokenness is to move toward us in the sacrificial work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to trust that you know us to our very depths. And you love us to a higher height than we could ever imagine. And this is actually good news. And so now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed and that your world would be renewed. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, I want to start out by giving kudos to Haley for reading a pretty complex scripture through a cacophony of a car alarm that was going off. Obviously, all of us that are here in person, we're kind of trying to focus through it. I don't know what it sounded like as you're watching online. I hope it did not sound like there was a car in the middle of your living room because it did sound like there was a car in the middle of ours. It actually reminded me of a time where I was preaching in county jail in San Francisco and I used to go to the mental health ward every week. And I would regularly be preaching while someone else would be shouting and screaming at someone who didn't actually exist, was a part of their own, you know, kind of mental makeup. And you just kind of get used to it and keep going. I remember one time this guy Larry was screaming at the top of his lungs. I'm in the middle of this complex part of the sermon. And I go, Larry, are you okay? He goes, yes, Pastor Matt, I'm fine. Carry on. I said, okay. And I kept going. And so did he. And uh, we got through it together. So I'm really glad that, uh, I hope Larry's doing well. I'm glad that that car alarm stopped and now we can get into the sermon. We're continuing in the season of Lent, these 40 days toward Easter, and we're, we're going through a series of sermons that are taken from the Psalms. The Psalms are, have often been known as the prayer book of the Bible. They give word to the entire spectrum of human emotion. So there are Psalms of great joy anticipation, expectation, gratitude. God, I thank you for the gift of nature. I thank you for the gift of health. I thank you for the gift of our resources. All sorts of gratitude, joy, connection. But somewhere around half of the Psalms aren't like that at all. There's Psalms that begin like we saw the other week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm lonely. All the people who claim to be my friends are talking badly about me. I've been betrayed. I cry myself to sleep at night. You see, Scripture is so authentic with the way that it views reality, and it gives you and me all sorts of permission and articulation of our current situation. That's why at Renew Church, we always strive to be authentic with each other. When I ask you how you're doing, the right answer is not always, I'm doing great, because sometimes you're not doing great, and sometimes I'm not doing great, and that's okay. It's okay to say, you know, this was a bad week. I'm having a really tough day. This is a difficult season in my life. And it's our job not to fix one another and not to give unsolicited advice, but to journey with each other, to walk with each other. That's what we've done during this season of the COVID pandemic with all of its incumbent confusion. You know, I wake up in the morning thinking about this community, I go to sleep at night praying for this church and this community. I'm passionate about this church and what God's doing here. Also, though, I've got to tell you, many of you know, I have a side job that I've had for over a decade where I coach business executives to communicate to influence. And during non-COVID times, it's really fun. I fly around the country and have a nice meal expense account and sit down with people in Fortune 500 companies who are directing multi-million dollar budgets and coach them to focus all those things. 
And in this pandemic, all of that has moved towards Zoom. So it's all on a little screen in my home office. The reason I bring this up now is because I've been struck this year as I've already met with four different clients, all of whom are in Fortune 500 companies, all of whom are international companies, all of whom have like tens of millions of dollars in their particular budget and 100 employees underneath them. And all of them, all of them, when we talk about the future, say, we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the economy. Nobody knows when the vaccines are going to help us reach herd immunity and we can find some sort of a new normal as a society. Nobody knows. And I got to tell you, that's very uncomfortable. There's also a bit of comfort in it because I go, you know what? I don't know either. It makes me feel a lot better at this church startup in North Park that's designed to care for all our neighbors. We have no clue. And you with all your millions of dollars and research specialists and actuaries and all of that, you have no idea. We are all joined in a confusion about the future. Now, it's not just the COVID pandemic that brings a lack of clarity for the future because life itself is ambiguous. You can't see around the corner. You can't see beyond the horizon. There are circumstances beyond your control and mine. I speak with people all the time as a part of my job who have a big decision to make. Maybe you feel like you're stuck at work and you're saying, I'm not sure if I should stay in this job. At least it's, at least it's steady income, but it's really not fulfilling me. Should I move on or should I stay? Or should I stay in a relationship? I know it's not optimal but it's better than being alone. Or you ask, how do I grow spiritually? How do I know who God is? How do I know if I can grow and connect with this spiritually divine force if it is out there at all? How do I relate to God? Or you ask big life questions about what career should you go into or what sort of education should you get or who should you marry? You ask questions like, how long can I afford to live in San Diego before I need to leave? You see, all these questions can force us to either run, and we just kind of get busy and we move, but we don't reflect. I think that's one of the reasons why Socrates, thousands of years ago, said the unexamined life is not worth living, because they did not stop to examine it then. And today, with all our technology and all of our sped-up mentality, we stop to examine it even less. So we either run and get busy... And in that case, the winner of the race is not merely the one who moves the fastest. It's the one who moves the fastest in the right direction. But we don't even ask what direction we're going in. Or we get paralyzed and we don't move at all. Maybe we, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And so we're paralyzed and there's no direction there. But here's the point. Is we all need direction, don't we? For all our technology, we have so much information and data. But what we long for is direction, discernment that is authentic and trustworthy. Otherwise, we end up making decisions based on the expectations of others, the pressure that they put on us, the image that they want us to upkeep. The expectations of others are a powerful driver in your life and mine. Are you aware of that? Or we make decisions based on our momentary, temporary emotions. Have you ever looked back on a big decision you made in your life and you said, it felt so right at the time? But now with some hindsight, you can say, what was I thinking? Well, we make decisions based simply on ease, the path of least resistance, least confrontation, least effort. But the point is we need something more stable. 
We need something more sturdy. And look, here comes Psalm 19. Do you see what it gives us in terms of authentic direction? It gives us a picture of a God who is immense, who is imminent, and who is intimate. First, a God who's immense. Verses 1 through 6 talk about the immense grandeur of God. Verse 1 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. This is an ancient image of saying, look around you at the glory of nature, at the beauty and complexity of the heavens. And this tells us, it shouts to us, the glory of God. Which, enough, it's enough right there just to pause and say that for, I would say for all humanity, just as a matter of common sense, but for Christians in particular, it is critical that we care for creation. It's critical that we care for the environment. It's not only, you know, in our own best self-interest to care for the planet on which we live. It's actually a matter of stewardship and responsibility that God has given us. Psalm 19 comes and says, Do you realize that the world in which you live is a canvas on which the Creator has painted the beauty of all creation, and He's entrusted it for you to steward and take care of, not to use it like a playground or a dumping ground but you live in the midst of a work of art. Responsibility. It makes me think of this bike that I have. I got into triathlons a few years ago, and I have a dear friend named Mike who is, uh, you know, he's on staff at Google, and he's a triathlete, and he gets good gear, and then he gives me his old gear. But here's the thing. His old gear is more expensive than any gear I will ever be able to afford in my entire life. So I ride this bike called a Ridley, and the Ridley bike is probably worth more than my car. He gave me the bike, and said, take care of it. And so when something goes out on the bike, I don't just sit there and kind of scratch my head and bang on it with a wrench a little bit. I take it to the best mechanic I can find. Yes, it's more expensive, but they're credentialed and certified to take care of this bike because the last thing I want is for Mike to come down from San Francisco to San Diego and see that I've not been taking care of the incredibly expensive, elaborate, exquisite gift that he gave me. Now that just pales in comparison to the gift that God has given us in this life on this planet. So what does it look like for you to be intentional about caring for the world around you? But it goes beyond that. Because this immense God actually has found a way to break through and reveal himself to us through nature. And you'll see that it's bright and brilliant, but it's incomplete. You see, the psalmist who is, uh, is believed to be King David of ancient Israel is fascinated and transfixed by something outside himself yet somehow he's not overwhelmed. He's able to see the glory and beauty of God. You can sense his fascination with creation. See, none of us simply observes nature. We have what feels like a religious experience. This is why if you go to Sunset Cliffs at the sunset, as the sun goes down across the horizon and you're looking for that green flash of light, Hundreds of people who don't know each other and have not collaborated will spontaneously burst out in applause. There's something in us that applauds the beauty of creation. This is why many of you would say, Yosemite is my church, or surfing is my worship service. And Psalm 19 says that's not far off, but it's incomplete. That impulse to enjoy creation, to drink it in, to be soothed by the sounds of the waves, 
to want to feel the wind on your face. The psalmist says, follow that impulse. Trace it back to its source. The reason why we treat creation as art is because it is. God is immense in God's grandeur. God is also immense in terms of God's desire. I mean, ask this question. Why did God make a world that reveals himself? Because God desires to be in relationship with you. Do you believe that? I wonder why we look at creation and don't say, whoever made this wants us to know him. Is it possible that we filter that out somehow? Evelyn Underhill wrote, Many people feel unaware of any guidance, unable to discern or understand the signals of God, not because the signals are not given, but because the mind is too troubled, clouded, and hurried to receive them. Not because the signals aren't given, but because the mind is too troubled, clouded, hurried to receive them. Now here's the, here's the clincher. She wrote that in 1941. Before the internet. Before email. Before the iPhone. Before you could work anywhere, therefore you work everywhere. How much more so now? Are you aware of the ways that you filter out? Because you're unavailable. Maybe this season of Lent, this next season, the the next few weeks before Easter are a time for you to say, I'm going to be more intentional about slowing down five minutes a day. Five minutes a day and praying a simple prayer. God, if you are there, I invite you to break through. Speak to me because I'm listening. Give me ears to hear. And then see what God says and does in your life. See, this immense God reveals himself in nature. It's communication. It's art. You look at the sunset and say, the maker of this must be beautiful. You look at the waves and say, the creator of this must be powerful. You look at the heavens and say, the creator of this must be complex and ornate and immense. It's communication. And yet, it's nonverbal communication. So it's incomplete and possible to misinterpret. And, and the psalmist gets after this when he says, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth. Right? What is it? it? The voice isn't heard, but the voice goes out. There are no words, but there's communication. It's nonverbal communication. See, if I was going on a hike, and I wanted you to be able to follow me, I could leave you nonverbal communication. I could put, you know, if I knew that you need to go three more miles and then take a right and then take a left, I could leave three stones and then a stick slanting to the right and then a stick slanting to the left. But when you come upon it, you would need to decipher and discern that and there would be plenty of room for miscommunication. You don't know if I'm telling you to travel on for three miles or for three minutes or for three days. You don't know if that right slanting stick means to turn right or to turn around or what it might mean. It's communication, but it's incomplete. It would be much clearer if I gave you words, if I wrote down for you the message. And we'll get to that in a moment. But in the same way, creation, the heavens, the sun, they give us information about God to wake us up, to provoke us. But they're inadequate in and of themselves. We need more. The message isn't clear. 
Nonverbal communication can be powerful, but it can be misinterpreted. I've shared this story before about my time in Egypt working with refugees from the South Sudanese Civil War. And when I was there in Egypt, one day there were all these children on the street. And I, loving all people, especially children, stopped. I was like a little celebrity, I felt like. And I just waved to all of them, like the Queen of England, you know. And I'm waving and I'm waving. And all of a sudden, these children all come to me. And they're gathered around looking at me with expectant eyes. And I said to my friend, who's a local and accustomed to the culture, I said, what are all these children wanting from me at this point? And he said, it's up to you. You're the one that invited them all to come over. I said, what do you mean? He said, in, this, in your culture, this means hello. In our culture, this means come here. You just invited the entire street to come toward you. Now what do you want to do with them? Nonverbal communication is powerful, but it can easily be misinterpreted. It will not revive your soul. The sunset can inspire you. The heavens can amaze you but they cannot convince you of a God who knows you and loves you and calls you his own. They cannot comfort you in your grief or inspire you in terms of direction. And he says, we need something more. We need something more. We need a God who's not only immense, but also imminent, who is close by, who can be apprehended and approached. We need a guiding God. And did you note, I mean, I know the car alarm was going off, but did you, did you note the twist, the turn, the, the really quick transition in verse 6? Talking about the sun, in ancient terms, the sun's rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Whoa, that was a quick transition. From talking about nothing is hid from the sun's heat right into the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now I know someone right now is saying, reviving the soul? Really? The commandments of God, the law of God, reviving the soul? I don't think so. I sat down yesterday at a cafe working on this sermon, and there was a couple having a conversation at the table next to me, and they unsolicitedly invited me to come and join their table. They sent a drink over to my table, so, you know, made new friends, told them about what I do for a living as a pastor of this church. And the guy said, I think I would go to your church. But my understanding of church and Christianity and the Bible is that it's just going to take its time to tell me all the things that I want to do are bad. It seems constricting. It seems like a straitjacket. And let me tell you, I hear you. And some communities are founded not on the things they're for, but on the things that they're against. You know, there was an old saying in the American evangelical church, don't date, you know, I don't drink or chew or date girls that do, and all that. And so you get known for all the things you're against as opposed to what you're for. But I want you to consider a new perspective. That the law of God, the commandments of God, the direction of God can actually be like water for your soul. John Calvin, the reformer, said that the Ten Commandments, the law of God, has a threefold role in society. On one hand, it's a mirror that we hold up to ourselves to say we can't do it on our own. We need God's grace. It also restrains evil within society. You know, as Martin Luther King said, there is no legislation or law that can make my neighbor love me, but there is a law that can make my neighbor not lynch me. And I think that's a good thing, right? Thou shall not kill. It shows us our need for God. It restrains society from evil. 
And then it becomes the family rules for what it means to live in community with each other. That we don't steal from one another. That we don't covet one another's stuff. That we respect one another's bodies and their partners. The law of God is actually refreshment for the soul. See, it gives wisdom that runs countercultural to the wisdom that we're accustomed to, right? Because our mantra, the modern person says, you know, the law of God is a straitjacket. Freedom is actually found by a lack of restrictions. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, and that's freedom. Common sense says real freedom and thriving is not found in no restrictions, but it's found in having the right restrictions. See, when our musicians play, when Haley is playing up here, we're hearing melodious, beautiful music. She can play any note and any chord at any time, but do you know what goes behind that? Years and years of chord progressions and waking up early and staying up late and playing through the scales and music theory and practice and being with other musicians. She has worked at her craft. She has applied the right restrictions so that when she's on this Nord stage piano, she can be completely free. If you were to go to an aquarium and you see a fish swimming around in that aquarium and you say, I'm going to liberate that fish from that water in that aquarium and you take it out and you set it on the counter, you have not liberated that fish at all. You've taken it out of its element. You've killed it. It's actually in those restrictions of the water that the fish is able to thrive. If you were to go to the local train station and say, this train is so big and so powerful and so beautiful and yet it's confined and constrained to these tracks, I'm going to liberate it. By taking it off the track system, you've just caused a train wreck. You see, freedom is actually found in the right restrictions. Friends, you can't know freedom until you know to say no to some things in your life that deaden, not revive, your soul. So when you find yourself in a place where you're saying, I know I'm doing something, that runs against the wisdom of God. I know I'm doing something, taking matters into my own hands. First of all, let me hear you say, that's the story of humanity going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. It is born of mistrust because you and I don't believe that God actually has our best interests at heart. We think we need to take matters into our own hands. But when you find yourself in that position, the danger light should go on your dashboard. I remember one time a guy said to me, you know, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, so I'm going to go and do whatever I want. And I remember saying to him, that's a great marketing ploy, but that's terrible life advice. If you go bankrupt in Vegas, you will still be bankrupt when you get back to San Diego. If you get someone pregnant in Vegas, they will still be pregnant when you get back to San Diego. If we find ourselves in such a situation that we know we're going against the wisdom of God, the light should go on our dashboard. Oftentimes, we'll ask questions like, is God going to punish me for what I did in Vegas? Is God going to punish me if I choose to go directly against the wisdom of God? And to that I would say, why are you afraid of running against the wrath of God, but you're not afraid of running against the wisdom of God? In other words, the natural consequences of the ways that we rebel and take matters into our own hands, 
are largely not God punishing us for doing this or that. Those things, those actions, those decisions will punish us themselves. Or as my mentor used to say, when you go against the grain of all reality, expect to get a splinter. When you move against God, you move against your own design. You're actually moving against yourself. But see, we need not only wisdom, we need perspective. Have you ever been in, in a traffic, maybe it was a street that you know or a freeway that you're aware of, and you thought you had a good way to navigate? You're not using Google Maps or Waze or anything like that. You're just going for it. And then you just hit traffic or road conditions or something had fallen off a truck, and you were stuck. Right? Or conversely, have you ever had your, your route mapped out in your mind, and you went to Waze or Google or whatever you use, and it said, take an alternative route. You thought, I don't want to take an alternative route, but I guess I'll try it. And sure enough, there was a traffic jam where you would have gone, but you actually made your way more clearly and more easily because you listened to the navigation. It's because the helicopter can see above and behind. It's because there's intel and data on the road that you're not aware of because you can only see so many feet in front of yourself. You need something with more perspective to help you navigate. So how do you decide when you look at your own heart, which of your desires to follow and which of them to ignore? You need somebody with perspective who knows your whole heart, who has not only deep knowledge of all the possibilities, who has that kind of perspective, but also a deep love of you. You need not only a God who's immense, not only a God who's imminent and close, but a God who is intimate and giving. And throughout the whole psalm, part of the theme is God continues to give. God gives resources, what the church calls means of grace. Means of grace are your toolbox for life. It's the things that God has given you to help you connect with God and be your truest self. And so in verse 7 through 10, it says, God has given you laws and decrees and precepts and commandments. And part of what it's saying is God has given you scripture. That God did not just leave you three stones and a twig in the, in the desert telling you how to journey through this life, but God has actually given you written down revelation of God's character, God's personality, God's calling in this world. And so it would behoove you and me to ask, how does Scripture and how does the redemptive narrative of Scripture inform your path and your trajectory at this point. Christian friends, what does your regular involvement with Scripture have to do with your sense of direction in life? Friends who are investigating Christianity, you found this to be a safe and respectful and thoughtful community where you know you're welcome. As a pastor here, one of the greatest things I can commend to you is if you're trying to get to know who Jesus is, start in the stories of his life in Scripture, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Start with Jesus and start with those who were closest to him and what they had to say. And when you make decisions, one of the lenses that you get is the lens of Scripture. Scripture doesn't talk about every decision that you're going to make in life, but Scripture gives you a good grid and framework for thinking through your decisions. So Scripture's not going to tell you if you should go into manufacturing or not as a career. But Scripture will direct you if you go into manufacturing how you should carry that out with, eth with ethics and authenticity. Do you seek authentic direction from Scripture? What does that look like in your life? 
in your personal study, in your daily diet of scripture. I find that a daily diet of scripture is often like a daily diet of nutritional food. If you miss one meal, you won't, you won't miss it too much. But if you miss all your meals, you're going to starve. What does it look like to have a daily diet of scripture? This is why to those in the community who have just given me your email address at the beginning of Lent, I sent out a couple of resources to walk through Lent with daily readings. A communal reading, a communal reading of scripture together where we apply it, where we encourage and challenge one another. This is why we have a community group every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. so you can bring your questions and your thoughts and we sharpen one another. You can receive authentic direction in scripture through preaching, by listening to someone who's devoted their life, who's trained and commissioned and held accountable to preaching the word. And still, you can fall off in listening to the sermon of one or two directions, whether it's me or any other pastor, on one hand, standing before the sermon and just critiquing it all the way through. I would have used a better illustration. I don't like the way that he looks, whatever it might be. So you critique it the whole time, but don't let it critique you. Or the exact opposite, overly accepting everything and not actually using your mind and thinking critically as you listen to the sermon. God says, come and listen. Reason with me. There was a group called the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. And when the early Christians went to them and told them the good news of Jesus and his rescue and God's love, they said, I'm going to take everything you say and I'm going to measure it against scripture. I'm listening, but I'm also listening intensively and intentionally. So the simple question is, if you are trying to grow in your faith and your connection to God, and God has given you not only the beauty of nature, but written revelation of his character and his calling, How are you interacting with scripture these days? And I want to be someone, a pastor in your life. This community wants to be a community you can walk with as you grow in that. So a start would be getting the weekly email from me as I'm giving out resources. Another one would be becoming a part of the community group on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. on Zoom as we read and study and pray together. So scripture is one of the gifts that God gives. It goes on. God gives the gift of community. Verse 12 has an incredible rhetorical question. Who can detect their own errors? And the answer is nobody. You and I have blind spots, and they are blind spots because you can't see them. If you could, they wouldn't be blind spots. I need you to be able to see my blind spots and lovingly point them out so that I can grow. And you need me to do the same. It's the critical nature of community. Don't go alone. This church is committed to not walking alone. The gift of prayer and meditation. In verse 14, it ends with, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In your prayer, when you're mindful of God's presence, What sort of a sense do you get? Especially when you're thinking through direction, decisions, where are you going? You have scripture to speak into it. You have community to speak into it. You have meditation to speak into it. And finally, you have logic, reason. God, in verse 1 through 6, is this picture of God has made a rational, logical world that operates by reliable principles. So does your decision make sense? Now, as you think through direction, 
and decisions. You have scripture, you have community, you have meditation, you have logic. They're not always going to line up 100%. It might not make logical sense for you to sacrificially and generously give your money to the poor in ways that are astounding. Your financial advisor might advise you against it. So it's not always going to line up in terms of logic or community in that way, just as it probably didn't make absolute logical sense for Jesus to divest himself of all power and authority and come into this creation and die for us and rise again from the dead. So the point is, you have these tools. You have these resources. Are you taking advantage of them? Are you taking advantage of them in the midst of community? But God goes beyond that. God doesn't just give us these resources. God gives us himself. In verse 14, it concludes with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What's going to make you a stable, buoyant, resilient, hopeful person in the midst of confusion when you can't see the future? Seeing the beauty of heaven Seeing the glory of creation will inspire you. Hearing the law of God will give you proper restraints so that you can flourish. Getting these resources will fill your toolbox. But what makes you the buoyant, resilient, beautiful, courageous person God has called you to be is being able to say, the creator of all of that and the giver of every good gift is a rock. He is standing there and I can base my life on God and God will never leave me or forsake me. God is a redeemer. God can rescue me from everything that I need to be rescued. But beyond even that, God is not just a rock and a redeemer out there. God is my rock and my redeemer. The creator of all of this knows your name and cares for you and calls you to himself. See, if your vision of God is just you have an immense God with a rule book, watch out. You will never run to that God. You will run from that God and you should. But this psalmist knows in God's immensity and grandeur, he doesn't just desire to be known, he moves toward us. I'll conclude with this story, that on Friday, my son Benjamin uh, had a special surprise for him. He turned 13 last month, and I wanted to get a bunch of people together for his birthday, but half of our family, our extended family, had COVID. It was a scary couple of weeks. Everybody's out of it, thankfully. So two days ago on Friday was the day, and I took him to Cowles Mountain after sunset. It was dark, and we're sitting in the parking lot, and I said, Benjamin, here's a flashlight. I gave him a buck knife that my dad had given to me, and I said, I want you to climb this mountain, but I want you to climb it alone. And I showed him, here's how you climb the mountain. I pointed out the path. There's going to be a fork at some point, turn left. I'm going to run up there 10 minutes ahead of you. I'll be waiting for you at the top. So Benjamin starts this night hike up this mountain with his flashlight and his knife. But what he didn't know is once he got a little ways down the path, his uncle was waiting for him. And his uncle said, Benjamin, I've been waiting for you to take this journey, and I want to walk with you. And as they continue on walking together, His other uncle says, Benjamin, I've been waiting for you to take this journey and I want to walk with you. And so on. His grandfather's waiting for him a while later and his other grandfather is waiting for him a while later and I'm waiting for all of them a while later with beverages and snacks for a celebration of Benjamin. That's a picture of the way that God loves you and me. You think you're going on this night hike and you can't see 
You don't have a map. You have a compass. You kind of know your general direction. And God says, I'm not just going to give you a compass. I'm not just giving you a map. I've been waiting for you to take this journey. And I want to walk with you. Friends, may you hear that invitation today. And may we walk together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray that you would help us to hear this invitation today. To be as inspired and awed by the beauty of your natural creation that communicates to us, but it communicates only partially. To actually see your law and your commands not as abstract constraints, but rather a way toward our flourishing. To see that ultimately you call us and you invite us to say, my, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus, you are the only one that when we follow you, we find out who we were truly created to become. And when we fail, you forgive us. Help, ourselves, help us to find ourselves in you today, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.